Good evening, everyone. Um, my name's Pat, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, just a heads up, as we go through tonight, there's going to be, you know, references flying here, there, and everywhere from Ecclesiastes. I'm probably not going to stop and give you the chapter and verse of every reference, but if you'd like to chase anything up in particular, the sermon script is already on the website, and so you can look that up through the week. Anyway, let's get going. I think us Aussies have quite a weird relationship to politics. On the one hand, we don't really have much respect for our leaders. In the last election, the leaders of the two major parties were ScoMo and Albo. That's what we called them. And that's leaving aside all of the derogatory alternatives to those nicknames as well. We don't exactly hold our leaders in high esteem. But we do hold them to a high standard, don't we? We expect much from them. We want them to be honest and not corrupt. We want them to be proactive rather than passive. We want them to fix problems, not add to them. And when they fail, we hold them to account. Surely that's part of the reason why we've had something like eight prime ministers in the last 15 years. They let us down and we let them go. But our relationship with politics is further complicated by the fact that we are exposed to news of political events that happen all over the globe. We see fools and tyrants in power. We see authoritative regimes and all manner of cruelty. We see oppression and aggression and corruption and we see it all the time. And so for many, engaging with politics is just overwhelming. And that leads some people to just tap out altogether. You know, I'm not even going to think about it. And for others, it tends to ramp up in increasing levels of anger and outrage and frustration. And Christians are not exempt from this. We are exposed to all of the same problems and pressures as our neighbours are. And even today, the chances are that some of you are sitting in this room thinking, what are we talking about politics at church for? Like, that's not what I come to church to hear about. And others are maybe thinking, finally, we can deal with the big issues. We should do this more often. And that's not to mention the fact that all of us will slot in at a different point on the political spectrum. And so the whole thing can seem kind of fraught. And I found myself thinking this week, whose idea was it to do this topic? And how did it end up with me? Having said all that, I don't think that anything about our modern political situation would surprise the teacher of Ecclesiastes. I'm happy to go with the traditional view that Solomon is the author of this book, the king in Jerusalem, David's son. And if that's true, Solomon's kingdom was only very small, but King Solomon was a man who had seen it all. He was, after all, married to Pharaoh's daughter. He sent his ships to trade across the sea. Kings and queens would visit him to hear his wisdom. And as we read again from the opening chapter of Ecclesiastes, here is what Solomon learned in his life. From verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And then verse 14, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The Hebrew word translated meaningless is hevel. It means vapor or mist, and it captures the fleeting nature of all human work and wealth and wisdom. Solomon learned in his life that he couldn't really get a hold on anything and everything he did grasp quickly slipped through his fingers. 
And if all is vapour, if all is mist, then of course that will seep into every area of life, including politics. As Peter Lightheart says, modern political life, Solomon would recognise, is a massive and massively doomed effort to shepherd wind. Politics, like all of life, happens in the mist. And so today we're going to listen again to Solomon's wisdom in Ecclesiastes and hear what he has to teach us about our own approach to politics in our time. So at this stage, it's probably worth trying to figure out what we're talking about when we say we're talking about politics. Here's my best effort at a working definition. Politics describes our communal efforts to manage the complexities of life in this world for the common good of all. Communal efforts to manage complexities of life for the common good of all. And if that's what politics is fundamentally about, then we can see that it is an important and necessary thing. Whether such a task is kind of made the responsibility of a ruling class or whether it's shared democratically across a whole people, politics matters. The book of Ecclesiastes has reminded us constantly that the world is complex and beyond any of our own control. None of us can navigate life in isolation from other people. And so we can't properly educate our children or execute justice unless we do that together. We can't really care for the poor or the sick. We can't combat oppression or corruption apart from doing it together. Politics exists in some form or another in every human culture throughout all of human history because God has made us in such a way that we need these sorts of communal efforts. We need together to organise our complex lives in this world for the common good of all. And it does make a huge difference whether that task is done well or poorly, doesn't it? The teacher says in Ecclesiastes chapter 10... Woe to the land whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed is the land whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Foolish leaders can plunge a whole people into ruin. Wise leaders can forge a path of flourishing for a whole nation. Good government is plainly a good thing. And so pursuing progress in our political life is a very worthy goal. Solomon tells us that politics is important and necessary, but that is hardly his focus. Far more so, he wants to teach us that human politics and human progress is limited. This is where he begins in Ecclesiastes. He says, what do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. Solomon describes this weariness that comes from a disturbing lack of progress. This heavy burden of everything staying so much the same, despite all of our best efforts to bring change. Now, that's not to say that real progress is never made in the world. I think a simple question will do. Would you rather live in the first century or the 21st century? There are so many equalities and freedoms that we enjoy today that just have not existed in the past. 
It's true that science and technology have come along in leaps and bounds. Even just basic health and hygiene are so much better now than they were even a hundred years ago. And yet, you only need to turn on the news or scroll through your Twitter feed or whatever else you do to see that inequality and oppression, they stubbornly persist. We see, don't we, that science and technology are used for great good and for great evil. That poverty and injustice and cruelty and corruption, they remain a reality of human existence. See, the burden that Solomon describes comes about because whatever progress we make, it is always limited. I mean, if we never made any progress at all, that's fine. We'd learn to deal with that because we wouldn't expect anything different. And if progress was always possible all the time, we would never experience frustration because everything we build, it would remain. But the prospect of change in an unchanging world, that's weariness. The sense that progress is within reach but never quite as good as we want it to be, now that's a burden. Again, Peter Lightheart says, we strive to shepherd wind and control the vapour, but the world goes indifferently on its way as it has always done. Our frantic efforts count for nothing as the sun still rises and set. The rivers still flow into the sea. The wind still goes around and around. We are frustrated because the world is impervious to our efforts to improve it. And Solomon knew that to be true of human politics as much as anything else. He knew that in the place of justice, there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. Power often belongs to ruthless oppressors who leave the oppressed with no comforter. He says in chapter 4, I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. The reality of unrelieved oppression remains to this day. Solomon knew too that people in power often used that power to line their own pockets or to pursue evil purposes. He knew that often the wise and the worthy were ignored or despised and that unworthy fools can often rise to be rulers. He knew how easily the human heart could be corrupted by the desire for greater wealth and power. And that even the best rulers and most popular leaders, they quickly come and go. They rise and fall and are then forgotten. And even good governments constantly come up against their own limits, don't they? I mean, what government can control the spread of an infectious virus? Hypothetically speaking. (laughs) I mean, what government can control the forces of nature? More to the point, what politician can reach into the human heart and curb our innate selfishness and greed? Who of our leaders can reach into the heart of an angry and violent man and quiet his rage? Who in authority can fight off their own decline and inevitable death? Political failure and frustration is so common that Solomon tells us in chapter 5, verse 8, we should not be shocked at the sight. And yet we are, aren't we, all the time shocked 
We say things like, I can't believe that this is happening. It's the year 2022. And Solomon would say to us, you fools, what did you expect? It's not the year you live in that matters, it's the world you live in. You live in a world of mist and vapour. We live in a world where it's the height of folly to believe that we can bring it under our own control. It's like we're given a surefire equation for political frustration. A high view of politics plus a high expectation of progress, that equals high levels of outrage. And so if we learn nothing else today, let it be this. Embracing Solomon's wisdom that politics is good, but that human progress is always limited, that will liberate us from much weariness and anger and frustration. Because Solomon's wisdom and the wisdom of the whole Bible doesn't so much kind of press us into a particular position in politics, but I think it does propose for us a particular posture towards politics. We're not told exactly, necessarily, where to stand on some sort of spectrum, but we are given the resources to have a stance of joy and hope in the midst of the mist. So that's what we're going to think about now. Five political postures that arise from the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. And firstly, prayer. I think that this is the expression of wisdom when it comes to the way we engage in politics. If we understand the vaporous and fleeting nature of politics, if we recognise the weakness of our politicians and the limitations of our political systems, then we will pray. Praying for those who rule over us is simply putting into practice the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, to fear God and keep His commandments. Because when we pray, we're recognising that true power doesn't lie with any human government, but with the God of heaven. And as we heard in 1 Timothy 2, God commands us to pray for those in authority. Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all goodness and holiness. It is striking every morning in our 8am service on a Sunday, as we work through the prayer book, that we pray every single Sunday for Queen Elizabeth and all who hold authority in this land. I mean, the first few times you do that, it seems a little bit strange, but it strikes me that it's a shame that our kind of modern rejection of some of those liturgies means our prayers for those in authority are so much rarer in comparison. I do wonder if so much of the outrage in our political discourse is simply an outlet for that collective feeling we have that the world is beyond our control. And prayer is simply channeling that feeling into our conversation with the Lord. Recognising, yeah, we are not in control, but also resting in the fact that God is. And when we pray, I think that will transform all of our political interactions. Because why would you need to fire off that frustrated Facebook post if you can make petitions to the King of the Universe? That's a better platform, I would argue. But how could we persist in outrage at our politicians if we persist in praying for them? And it will shape our public criticism of our politicians if we 
privately make intercession for them? And how hard would it be for us to join in the disrespectful mockery of those who lead us if we have obeyed God's command to give thanks for them? The words of John Bunyan are very appropriate here. He said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. By all means, do more than pray, but I urge you, first of all, to pray. Which leads to a second posture of solidarity. When our politics is characterised so much by taking sides... It's very important to remember that, in a very real sense, we are all standing in the same place. Ecclesiastes reminds us, we all live our lives under the sun. We are all creatures. We all exist in the same world of mist and vapour, and we all share the common destiny of death. Of course, in our communal efforts to manage the complexities of life for the common good of all, we will have very different ideas of how and what that will look like. We'll have different conceptions of what the common good really is and different ideas of how we should work towards that end. But even our biggest political differences do not change the fact that we share a common humanity. And when we recognise our shared humanity, we can reject that form of politics that sees everything as a battle. It's not ultimately about us versus them. There is only us, you know, one human community, all fallen into sin, all made in the image of God, all living in a good but fallen world. Contrary to what we often see and hear in the media coverage of politics, we are not first and foremost detached individuals coming to the table trying to secure our own rights and freedoms. We are instead members of the human family, existing in an interlocking web of life, and we're meant to promote the health and the happiness of the whole human community, and indeed of the entire creation. Now, that doesn't mean we abandon all conviction for some vague and bland centrism that just wonders, why can't we all just get along? But it does mean that we won't abandon all civility as if politics requires us to leave virtue at the door and just come in all guns blazing. Rather, we'll adopt a third posture of genuine listening in order to grow in understanding. In our time of social media echo chambers, I think this desire to actually comprehend what other people think, to talk to people who have different ideas to you, that is absolutely necessary to a Christian political witness. Do you want to know my pet political peeve? It's the phrase, I don't understand how anyone can think, insert position here. And you hear it from Christians quite a lot as well. I don't understand how any Christian could vote for the Liberal Party. I just don't get how a Christian could vote for the Labour Party or the Greens. I mean, really? You can't understand? There are people who do that and you could ask them why and they might even tell you. You don't have to agree with them. See, Solomon's wisdom reminds us that politics is unavoidably complex and Christian history shows that faithful believers have held so many different political philosophies. 
And so we must reject the suggestion that answers to political questions are obvious or that solutions to society's problems are simple. We must instead assume the humble posture of understanding that recognises our own limitations and refuses to demonise even our political enemies. The posture of solidarity leads to a posture of understanding. And then a fourth posture is community, because the book of Ecclesiastes, and of course all of Scripture, does present us with a vision of the good life. We are given this content that will shape the way we think about the common good. Having just spoken about unrighteous rulers in chapter 8, Solomon goes on to say, I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in all their toil, all the days of life God has given them under the sun. Throughout the whole book, five times he repeats that exhortation to enjoy feasting and fellowship with family and friends. It's echoed in 1 Timothy 2. We pray for our leaders so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all goodness and holiness. Politics, at its best, is about establishing and extending the possibility of peace, of creating the conditions where that sort of community can be enjoyed by all. In one essay, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. The language is a little bit tricky, but I think you'll get what he's saying. As long as we are thinking only of natural values, we must say that the sun looks down on nothing half so good as a household laughing together over a meal, or two friends talking over a pint of beer, or a man alone reading a book that interests him, and that all economics, politics, laws, armies, and institutions, save insofar as they prolong and multiply such scenes, are a mere ploughing the sand and sowing the ocean, a meaningless vanity and vexation of spirit. What he's saying is that if we engage in politics but lose sight of that practical goal of peace and that tangible aim of community, then we set ourselves up to be shepherds of wind. But the good news is, we can pursue that goal all the time. Because if politics is our common efforts to manage the complexities of life in this world for the common good of all, then that task extends far beyond the walls of Parliament House and it comes into our homes, into the lives of everyday normal people. It's what happens every time we come together in communities of love and care, when we extend generosity and hospitality, when we share food and drink and we invite others in to enjoy our gladness. See, I think it should give us pause for thought that often we know more about the politics of places on the other side of the world than we know of the problems of the person who lives next door to us. I find it so easy to be consumed by news of these far-flung places. I can literally do nothing to respond to what I hear. And yet, I don't even know anything about the person who lives across the street. That's a challenge for me. I think we should listen to Gandalf, 
the wise wizard of the Lord of the Rings. At one point he says, it's not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the comfort and help of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields we know, so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. That God has set us in this particular place, at this particular time. And he commands us not to save the world, but to love our neighbours. And he calls us not just to a general love of humanity, but to the much harder task of loving the actual human beings that cross our path every day. That sort of posture will be far more costly, far more challenging... But as Alistair Roberts says, the church cannot satisfy itself with the political and legal tasks of overturning injustices in laws of the land. It must be committed instead as the very principle of its life to the demonstration and declaration of the goodness and the miraculous possibility of a better way of love. And so we adopt a posture of community. One final posture, and with a few more days of reflection, I think I would not say patience, I would say hope. One writer says, the most radical and revolutionary political act of our time is to have hope. Because there are many other wise philosophers who have pointed out the futility of the modern political project, and a lot of people around us Notice the lack of progress and the limitations of government and they've been engulfed by a kind of despair and pessimism for all forms of authority. But Solomon avoids that downward spiral into outrage and frustration because even his unblinking examination of power and oppression is pervaded by the faith that God rules over it all. He knows that oppression and injustice often flourish in this world, but he is confident that they won't flourish forever. Like Martin Luther King Jr., he understood that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Solomon knows that under the sun there is no perfect justice or final judgment, but he also looks to the time when God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked when God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. That's the final verse of the book, and it's a fitting place for it to end. With the assurance that true power lies with the Lord, that there is a shepherd king above every king, but there is a God who governs the course of every human government. And so Solomon, the son of David and king in Jerusalem, he maintains a posture of hope in the midst of the mist. And so can we, and so much more so. We can dare to hope because we know the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, the one who is the king of the new Jerusalem. And we know that he rules a kingdom that is not of this world, that he is a king who doesn't take for himself or oppress the weak, rather he generously gives to the poor and heals the sick. As the kids of our church have been learning this term, he is a king who uses his power always to love and to serve people around him. 
He stoops down to wash the feet of the least and the last and the lost. He invites the unworthy to sit around his table. He shares with us food and drink that we might enjoy the fruits of his labor. He is a king who can reach into our hearts and transform us to be people of love. And he is a king who has conquered death. He lives and reigns even today. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his gracious and good rule will never come to an end. Politics in the mist may often feel like one long defeat, but in Christ we can be confident of final victory and an even longer joy. And so, brothers and sisters, we don't need to be overwhelmed by politics. Because we know the Lord Jesus rules over this world. We don't ever need to fear a human government. Instead, we must fear God. We don't need to get sucked into a political culture of outrage and frustration. Instead, we can obey God's command to love Him and love our neighbours. And thank God that we don't need to put our faith in the shifting sands of politics, for we know the one shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can hope. Amen. There's a reflection question that you can think about for a moment at the bottom of the sermon outline. And if anyone has a question, we've got a bit of time to field some of those. Would anyone like to ask a question? Carol. Mm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so the, um, the quote was from a guy called Alistair Roberts and he, the first part is the church cannot satisfy itself with, you know, changing the laws of the land. So I think that by all means the church should seek to bend the laws of the land towards justice and like you say, there are so many examples where the church has done that. But I think that the real strength of those efforts in history that have brought about substantial change is that the life of the church bears witness to that kind of vision of the good life and that makes it possible for people to see um, and that actually the law of the land doesn't matter half as much as our own 
kind of commitment to live the life of love to which God has called us. And I think that when you see the church living out that way of love, that gives all the more kind of weight to its efforts to bring that out into society as well. Yeah, and I think that that's one example where I reckon there's a lot of freedom for Christians to adopt different positions on that. Like, I think, you know, my bent is to say we should give more effort to displaying the life of love and the kind of, that goodness that comes from the gospel and get on with doing that and that that will be a powerful witness but then others will be more bent that we need to be kind of that prophetic witness to the culture around us and I think that it's easy to go oh that you know those Christians over here just they don't care about the rest of society you know oh they've you know they're just too invested in politics but I think that's a case where actually we can have the freedom to you know think differently in terms of that question of how much um yeah, no worries. So please pray with me. Almighty Father, whose kingdom is everlasting, we ask you of your mercy to direct and prosper the counsels of all those who bear authority in this land, that in humility and honesty they may faithfully serve the people committed to their charge. And grant, we ask you, that religion and piety, peace and unity, truth and justice may be established among us for all generations, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.